If you have a Bible with you this morning, please turn to James chapter 3. We're kicking off a new series on the third chapter of James. Um, uh, The third chapter of James. And the third chapter of James is really all about wisdom. If you think of the book of James, it's really this, this book written to a whole wide variety of churches, not written to a specific one, but to Christians kind of in general. And it's really talking about um, how does this thing really work. It's a very practical book. It's, it's considered one of, the, one of the wisdom books in Scripture along with Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's, it's really getting at this question of how should we live. So uh, given the reality of Christ and, and what has transpired, you have James really reflecting from a, a pastoral perspective, from a pastor's heart, and talking to Christians and saying, um, this, is, this is what it's about. If you need wisdom, pray to God. And don't you know that you can consider all things joy because even your suffering here is going to produce character and, and character has to be there because that leads to perseverance and those kinds of things. And, and hey, faith and, and works, those two things aren't pitted against each other. Um, true faith is... It's like breathing, you know, is it inhale or exhale? It's, it's both. And when faith is alive, you can't break it into two categories like, um, you know, f- grace or works. It's, there are two parts of an inhale, exhale, or breathing. And so James really tries to deal with this whole thing about what does it look like for you to have this real kind of live faith. And he talks about don't just listen to the word or hear the word. You've got to do the word. You have to kind of live this thing out and put it into practice if you're going to have the, the benefit or the fruit of this relationship with God. So it's a very practical book. And then when we get to James chapter 3, um, James really wants to speak to us about how this, this whole thing kind of comes together and is held together with maturity or wisdom. And that's what we're going to focus on uh, for the month of June. And it's an interesting thing. I was uh, with our daughters. We've kind of been teaching them a lot about art or trying to talk to them a lot about art. They're taking music lessons and trying to get them to think about what what makes art and and, uh, why that's valuable and what are the kind of essential things at the heart of it. And something interesting in that is that good art gets in your head, it gets in your soul, and it it stays with you. Like it, it touches the water, the surface of the water, if you will, and it sends a ripple. And you find yourself, when you've come into contact with good art or art that says something to you, that you carry it with you and you find yourself reflecting on it later. You find yourself remembering it. You find yourself being drawn to it. You find yourself being influenced by that. And so I was thinking about that aspect of art and getting ready for this morning. And so I went back through and found a bunch of old pictures of things that have really spoken to me. Um, this is one of the slaves of Michelangelo. It's in the uh, academy. If you go 50 feet to the left, it's the David. Um, but several of what's called the slaves, which was a big piece he was doing for uh, Pope Julia, uh, Julian II, Julius II, something that begins with um, Jewel. Um, I think uh, Julius II, but was doing kind of his memorial for when he died and, and was something he worked on for many years in different stages. But the slaves were going to be a part of that. And so they lined the one wall as you go towards the David. But what I loved about these is 
they show kind of Michelangelo's later fascination with what, what he called the unfinished, um, where he didn't do all 360 degrees and he didn't um, polish it all the way out to, to the very detail of the fingernail or whatever it would be. Um, he would leave a lot of things rough on purpose because he felt like the unfinished part of a piece spoke as much um, to the artistic value as the finished part. And I think you can almost see that, right? Or, or feel that or sense that. It's a bad picture because it's on my iPhone. You're not supposed to take pictures in there. Um, but I have a bad habit of doing that even when you're not supposed to, partly because I don't like to follow rules, partly because I know when it's marble that it's not because light is going to damage them or pictures, but they just want you to buy things in the, in the, in the museum shop. And so I really struggle with it. And so I kind of will still take pictures. It's, it's an area where God is working on me <laughs> and I'm st I still have room to grow. Um, but so hopefully you can see a little bit of just the unfinished and what Michelangelo kind of was doing there. And I, um, there's another aspect of art real quickly. Um, in the print process, JC, um, can, can nod your head if I'm getting it right, but C, uh, CMK, it's kind of the three colors in the print process. It's kind of a, 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 a bluish color, purplish color, a reddish kind of color, and then it's keyed to the black, and so the black is the K. Um, but these three colors, when you put them together in the print process, make every other color. And it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. These three colors um, are what goes through uh, the print process to give us the, the millions of shades of colors that we get. The interesting thing is, is if you just had kind of the magenta color, everything would be rosy um, and kind of warm. And if you just had kind of the purplish color or bluish color, everything would be cayenne. Thank you. Um, the Gabberts actually have a daughter named that, um, which I should remember. Cyan, the, the, the C, the C color, uh, it's not the K, it's the C, but the, the bluish, you, you end up with just the cool kind of um, coldish kind of things, right? Um, but the interesting thing is, is if you took away the black um, or if it wasn't keyed to the black, you wouldn't have depth. What the, what the black does is it adds a sense of depth to all of the colors that come out on the other side of the, the print process. Um, and I think darkness in life, you know, as I was hearing an artist a couple months ago talk about it, um, it's the dark times and it's the dark spots and it's the rough spots that add depth or dimension to our life, isn't it? Um, that make us kind of robust people. And, and I think that's the same kind of idea that Michelangelo was going at with this idea of the unfinished. Um, this is Raphael's School of Athens. Philosophy is something that I love. It intrigues me. But I'd seen this picture um, for most of my adult life, and I didn't realize it was a fresco covering um, a whole wall of a papal chamber. So if you're walking through... Uh, the papal chambers in the Vatican, you'll come through a little door on the left. Uh, it's not shown in this picture. Um, and 
and it's just fresco. It's, it's on plaster on the wall. And this was a bedroom for one of the Renaissance popes. And so you've got Plato and Aristotle in the center, one pointing to the heavens, one pointing to the earth, because uh, the Aristotelian and Platonic are kind of a different approach. And you've got Michelangelo, Raphael is who, is who did this. And he got to see the Sistine Chapel about the time he was finishing this and was so amazed by it that he, he put Michelangelo kind of in the foreground here, even though it doesn't really make any sense. You see how it kind of is out of perspective. Um, but this picture intrigued me before. It intrigues me even more now that it's like on the bedroom wall of a Renaissance Pope in the Vatican. And it's just like, it transports me into that whole world of art and ideas, and I, it, I carry it with me. It's an interesting thing. Um, next picture. Uh, to, that's me. But just to show you that there's three in the mosaic. This is in the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. So there's three mosaics in the back. There are three people in the mosaic. Uh, the mother of Jesus on his left and John the Baptist on his right. And then there's a close-up here. Um, but this picture, this kind of iconic picture of Jesus, again, I'd seen it in religious books kind of growing up and way more when I went to seminary. And it was this kind of um, austere, I don't know, religious feeling, sacred kind of feeling picture, image. And when I saw it as a mosaic kind of in the Hagia Sophia, um, the big church in what was Constantinople and now is Istanbul, it, it's just an intriguing thing that reminds me there's, there's aspects to faith um, like liturgy, um, like uh, people who go and will do prayer vigils or prayer walks or more kind of um, toned down and focused and very emotional or, or very intentional aspects of connecting with, uh, with God through reading the Psalms, the common book of prayer, and these kinds of things. I'm not, liturgy wasn't my thing growing up. Um, I don't have that much experience with it. I'm not good at even understanding it, but, but this painting, or I'm sorry, mosaic, and things like it remind me that there's, there's stuff out there that hits at a different aspect of faith and emotion than what I typically carry with me. Like it, this picture has continued um, to push back on me. Um, I could say picture, but mosaic. It has continued to push back on me and shape me in rather unique ways coming from this Eastern tradition. Um, very interesting to me. Um, this is a, a Greek vase in the, the Met in New York. So the Metropolitan Museum of Art and they've got one of the largest Greek and kind of ancient um, Egypt and Greek collections. And you see the athletics. And just when I, when I was staring at this, and the reason I took the picture was when you're reading Scripture and Paul is writing to these Greek churches and he's talking about training and, and everyone you know, trains to go in the games, but only one gets the prize. And so run in, in such a way as you get the prize. It, it really... Paul was writing to real people in a real culture with a real kind of um, DNA and, and stuff to them, like an identity to those people. And it's reflected in the pottery. It's reflected in the things of that time period. And so seeing this, it, it connects to Scripture in a way that's profound to me. So this artwork, 
illuminates the words of scripture and makes me wrap my mind around it in a whole different way. And so Greek vases have become one of the ways I've thought through how Paul writes to those Greek speaking cultures. Uh, another couple, couple here. Um, really, I really was impacted by just the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in DC um, with him kind of coming out of this mountain and it's not shown, but if you've been there, you've seen it on, on kind of arched all the way around it, very much granite like the Vietnam uh, Memorial would be. It's just flat stone with quotes um, on it of Martin Luther King. So you've got his words around him and then you've got him emerging kind of from this rock, from this mountain. And you get this idea of really, you know, a lot of his speeches. I've been to the mountaintop and I dream of a day and, you know, this kind of faith can move mountains. And you get this mountain imagery that keeps coming back and reverberating with the things you know of the man and the things that, that he's, he taught or wrote um, as he was teaching. And so it's something that's been fascinating to me just to think about a life legacy and a person's work and the words and the concepts that go with that and what would be the artistic representation that would demonstrate that? Like how would you capture your message? Like what is the center of your life? What, what are you all about and how would that be represented? So this was pretty profound to me. Um, and I think this is the last one, but this is uh, at the Genocide Museum in, in Cambodia, outside of Phnom Penh by about 20, 30 minutes. And, uh, and it's, it's part of where the killing fields were. And so this was one of the primary killing fields and they've dug up uh, a lot of the remains and they can show you different areas where they would kill, kill children, how they would do it, certain trees that would use, were used in certain ways. Um, so the next slide uh, is a picture my friend took of a girl. This is the actual memorial. It's got um, skulls. And the point of the skulls was that you'd be able to see where they were, where they were smashed in um, for saving bullets. Uh, and... And it's just this surreal picture of something so innocent, this girl in front of it, and then the horror behind it. Uh, and then this last picture is from the Toll Slaying Prison. So S21 is what it was called. It was the main, in the capital city, the main kind of political dissident prison. Nobody made it out of there alive, but they would torture you uh, and torture you and torture you and torture you. And so if you go through it now, it's a museum. And they still have the beds, the metal beds. They still have the instruments of torture. They still have historical kind of archived pictures depicting or uh, that, that were taken of torture. Uh, but everyone that came in there kind of had like a mug shot. And so these pictures, little thumbnail pictures of all the people that came through there, nobody made it out, are everywhere. They had these, these little kind of faces. And so everywhere you go in this museum of the Tulslang prison is they've blown up pictures of, of the people. And they had an art contest and this artist, this Cambodian artist, took some of the images from those little thumbnails of people that had been in this prison and created artwork out of it with the idea that these people and these faces need to come back to life that somehow we have to pull these through an artistic medium into meaning something 
more than just the little thumbnail picture. And I remember standing in this room, it was an art exhibit, after having gone through all the different rooms uh, where torture had taken place and seeing those kinds of things. And art here, whether the artist attains it or not, whether you like what the artist is doing or not, you begin to realize that art has this creative power of reimagining reality, recrafting hope, um, speaking a fresh word in, helping us sing a new song. And so that's really what this artist is doing and you can sense that and the power that art has with that. Does that make sense? Okay, so art gets in you and it says things to you and it shapes you and it affects you and it molds you. It's like hand squeezing into clay. The spoken word is very similar. It's very similar. When we speak words through rhetoric, uh, persuasion, passion or emotion or conviction, when we speak words that have all of that energy, creative impulse in them, trying to make people understand something that you feel or believe or trying to get them to believe as you do, when we're doing that, we're really engaged in an art form of trying to mold or shape or affect the hearer. Does that make sense? And I think we have to understand this so that we understand why James chapter 3 launches into this kind of discussion that it does and then culminates with wisdom. So the beginning of James chapter 3, read with me if you would. It says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers and my sisters, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. But not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. There's something interesting that James is pointing out, and if, if we can draw it, uh, I'll try to draw it. If you put Antioch's four core commitments here in the middle, um, which I, I really take to be kind of four biblical values that are coming at it from different directions, but Christ-centeredness, I'm just going to do shorthand, so uh, bear with me. Uh, authentic spirituality, so it's authenticity. Inclusive community. And the justice or missional living or a missional mindset that basically getting outside of ourselves that realizing the other or others have something to say about me. I'm not just this individualized particular that goes around the world, but, but this kind of missional uh, idea that I'm called and that I live on mission. So this, this is kind of at the center of Antioch. What James is really saying is that when you teach, you're really calling people to your way of thinking. You're really trying to persuade them to join you where you are. You're criticizing something so that they would then see it the way you would see it. But really, 
teaching is influence, influence is leadership. Leadership is a call for people to follow. Does that make sense? And so James is saying, hey, um, not all of you should presume to be teachers. You can teach um, and people might follow, but does that make you a teacher? Because at the end of the day, what are you calling them to and what are they following? And James is saying, teachers ought to be not, I, I, don't, I don't take his words to say perfect, but mature. Like Paul would say when he's talking about elders or deacons or, or the like, it's character, it's character, it's character. And then there's one non-character trait and what is it? The ability to teach. Because it goes so hand in hand with this biblical understanding of leadership. And so what, what James is saying is like, hey, this is a pretty tough calling because people are going to follow you wherever you're at and you're going to have to give an account for what happens to them. You're going to have to give an account to either how you helped them or hurt them. Remember Jesus' dire warning that like better a millstone be tied around your neck and you'd be thrown into to a lake and drown than that you would cause an innocent child to stumble. So you, you, if you're in a position of influence, if that influence doesn't get used well, if it gets used poorly and you cause somebody to stumble or fall away because of that, woe to you. It would be better if, if a millstone had been tied around your neck and you'd been thrown into um, a lake. Now, is it just for elders uh, that are gonna be teachers? By the way, this word uh, didaskalos, didaskalos, this is the word here for teacher. And it also stands for master. Um, it's basically the person that people would be following that would have that influence or authority or leadership. So we're talking about spiritual teaching here. Um, spiritual leadership here. And it says in Hebrews chapter five, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, hey, you guys should be teachers already. You've had enough time. You've had all that you needed. You should be teachers already, but you're not. As it is, you're actually like infants. Your maturity level or your character level, whatever it is, your level of spiritual formation is as like infants and you should have been able to teach already. So this isn't just like a big kick on submit to your elders and whoever's in authority. It's we, we can all aspire in some sense to be teachers, okay? Um, in some sense, uh, the writer of the Hebrews was, was saying that ought to be what we should be envisioning is that the disciple becomes the disciple maker, that this is kind of the natural process. But what James is warning us is to say, don't take this flippantly. Don't take this flippantly. Yes, you can speak persuasively. Yes, you can use rhetoric. Yes, you can go out with all your emotion and all your opinions, but you gotta be really careful because if you replicate yourself, if you're not mature enough or have enough character, are you really helping somebody else or are you really just feeling good about gaining a follower? So he warns us about this. I think this has a lot to do with church too. Uh, so I'll hazard one more drawing. It's the first time I've ever used the phrase hazard like that in a sermon, which just made me feel like in that second, I, I crossed a boundary of becoming cheesy and uncool. And so 
the rest of my days when I preach, I will probably be cliche. Because um, I just use that really, whatever. Anyways, so if I can hazard another picture. Um, <laughs> so just going to go home and be depressed. Um, so here's a football field um, in a stadium, okay? Uh, I've used the analogy before that, and I think it's a good one, that church is a lot like a football game. That there are um, 11 people on one side, 11 on another. There are 22 people on the field desperately in need of rest. And that there are 60,000 in the stands desperately in need of exercise. (laughs) And that that's a lot like church, right? Um, I, I so have a joke that's inappropriate right now. Um, but so I've used this analogy a lot, and, and I think it's an apt one. I want to borrow it a little bit further. Um, there, there are a lot of things that have gone down, even just in the last year, about players on teams, uh, wide receivers. So one for the Philadelphia Eagles, it got, was a star wide receiver, got let, let go by Chip Kelly. Because Chip Kelly's like, yeah, I don't want to deal with him. I don't want to deal with him. I don't want him on my field. Well, why? He's the star receiver. Yeah, but he's critical. Like he's critical and, and ultimately his mouth, his teaching, his leadership, his example influences people to go in a direction that's counterproductive to what I'm trying to do as the coach. Right? And we all kind of know that. I remember um, in the 80s watching football players when I was first picking up on this. The guys that were too good to go to the huddle or the guys that yelled at their, their quarterback because they were open and he didn't throw them the ball and they're like yelling at him and it's like, you're on national TV. Um, people can see this. Or the quarterback, someone doesn't block or jumps off sides and he like grabs their face mask and yells at him and you're like, you're, I don't know that I'd want to play for you. You know what I'm talking about? When somebody is critical or um, uses their authority or their influence in kind of a counterproductive way on the field, how do we feel about it? I think we all, by the, I, I'm, I'm not going to fill it in for you guys. I need something, Just like a little bit of something. Anyone watch football? Um, <laughs> When you see somebody being a baby on the field or, or just being immature, how does that make you feel? Annoyed. Annoyed. And so when we see it, all of us watching football or basketball, whatever it is, when we see someone on the team, partly because we know what they're getting paid, um, we're like, really? Uh, but we get annoyed. Okay. Here's the interesting thing. What, is, what are these people doing in Philly? How do they act? Right? But we don't ever really think about it like, wow, that's just so awful, so horrible. I can't believe they're so critical or that they say those kinds of things. That's really mean-spirited. We just kind of ignore it. We give it a pass. We give it a pass. And I think we do that in the the Christian world. We, We have... People that we call ministers, even though 1 Peter teaches us that all of us are ministers. 
You have a gift. You have a talent. God has a calling for your life. Whether you're doing it or not, I don't know. But we all collectively as Christians have a part to play in the body of Christ. We're all ministers. It's called the priesthood of believers. And and so we're all supposedly on the team, but I think sometimes it's like, well, there's a couple people that are a little bit more visible, and if they're going to mess up or be critical, we're going to really be upset about that. I think it's, it's not, not fitting, but everybody else has a pass. Everybody else can use their words however they want. Everybody else can be as critical as they want. Everyone can shape or influence or turn other people however they want, and it's fair. Why? Because they're passionate or convicted, or have an opinion, or they seem persuasive, or they have good rhetoric. You see what I'm saying? But we're never gonna, gonna analyze them the way we would as if they were a player on the field with ownership. And I think what James is teaching us here is um, we all are gonna be held to this standard. We all should hold each other to this standard. That if somebody, no matter how persuasive, is talking, if it's not mature, if it's not going to build up, if it's not going to bring about the state of affairs that God would want, it's not appropriate leadership. Ephesians 4.29 says this. um, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. The people listening to my art form and my energy and my emotion should benefit from it. The body of Christ should benefit from it. That somehow I have to wash what I'm saying and be careful how I exercise my leadership. Does that make sense? Jesus says in Matthew, um, He says this, do not judge or you too will be judged. It's God's job to judge. We love playing the Holy Spirit more than we like playing the disciple. You know that? Like we we would much rather play the Holy Spirit's role than play the role that was given to us where we edify the body of Christ. We, we do things to edify it, to build it up. We use language to nurture it. We play our part by serving, that we try and um, bear with all things and all these one another's in scripture to love one another, encourage one another. That's our job and it's messy and it's hard sometimes and it's dealing with people that sometimes we could come up with all sorts of excuses not to bear with. But it's so much easier to play the Holy Spirit's job and to decree and to judge and to convict the world of their sin. Um, I'm really, I don't know about you, but I'm really good at that one. I, I kind of think maybe we all are really good at that. Pointing out sins in other people, being judgmental, I kind of think it's an easy thing, partly because everyone gives us such um, such good ammunition. You know what I mean? Uh, people around me, they really open themselves up to it. Um, of course, I'm not thinking of myself in that because judgment never does. Um, but I can play the Holy Spirit's role pretty well. I can use my words. I can use my persuasion. I can create art and it will influence 
but am I really being a teacher? Am I really calling people to myself in maturity and health so that they may benefit? Um, by the way, there's this phrase, righteous anger, which implies that there's such a thing as unrighteous anger. Unrighteous anger is simply unpurified anger. It's, it's anger that vents itself out into the world and destroys stuff or people or relationships because it hasn't gone through Matthew 18 yet, which says, go to the person and talk to the person. You know, you might have misunderstood them. Or there might be another side to that story. Or, or they might just up and say they were wrong and, and apologize, which actually happens. We always assume the other person's not going to apologize. And it's the crazy thing sometimes when you go confront someone and you're ready for a fight and they just say, yeah, I'm sorry. And it's almost like a letdown. It's like I, I, I wanted to be able to hate and you're taking that opportunity away from me. I wanted to be able to vent. I wanted to be able to judge. I wanted to release this emotion. But now it's all gone. Am I really willing to let it go now? And it, real, it forces you to realize that some of that anger, some of that emotion, all those parts of it might have been just, it was unrighteous, unbaptized, unpurified anger. Um, but unrighteous anger is unpurified anger. Anger that hasn't sat in prayer, that hasn't bathed in scripture, that hasn't looked at itself yet, that hasn't done the things it needs to do to be constructive anger. Does that make sense? So Jesus, going back to Jesus, Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. So James is saying, don't endeavor to be a teacher um, because don't you know the level of influence you wield if it's in any kind of a negative, um, the judgment will come back on you to the same degree. I mean, it's the same thing James is teaching us. Verse three, Jesus continues. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Let me say it this way. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, be humble, be self-effacing, be gracious, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So I'm, um, this is kind of a Sunday where I'm bringing in some art stuff, trying to help you think visually. So I thought, um, I found this picture when I was looking for the other ones. I thought I would bring one more picture um, to show you, just to give you a visual. This is Ashlyn. I was on a trip. Tamara texted it to me because Ashlyn bumped her eye and ran off to go get a Band-Aid. Um, and came back and Tamara turned around in the kitchen and there was Ashlyn. So um, this is what we should look like if we're going to go criticize somebody else. We've, we've done surgery on ourselves. Um, we're not afraid of how we look. Uh, we've removed the log or the plank. Uh, and now we're willing to approach other people in a way that would probably actually disarm them. So there you go. That's my, my visual <laughs> 
uh, of Ashlyn as a baby to help you remember John 7. Um, okay, so um, back, to, back to James. So James says, don't endeavor to be a teacher, or not many of you should endeavor to be a teacher um, because you know that you who teach will be judged more strictly. In verse 3, it says this, when we put bits into the mouths of horses, we make them obey us, and we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven uh, by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. I remember teaching this for the first time. I was a, a Christian camp counselor in the mountains, uh, San Bernardino Mountains, and it was like the first summer I'd ever read the book of James, and I was teaching it to little kids. And this passage was so visual that I was like enamored with it. Because the mountains, um, just like in, in central Oregon, you can see where the scars are from forest fires. And with every one of those forest fires, you know that it somehow began with a small spark or a, a fire that wasn't put out or somebody that was trying to create an arson situation. But you know that it was started in some small way and then ultimately grew to just mar the countryside like a big forest fire will. So I was teaching these little kids, like, what you say about other people can burn their character, burn their reputation, and scar it like these forest fires can do. And, uh, and so it was this kind of visual thing. But this is what the tongue can do. So James is now reducing leadership and teaching down to the tongue and saying the tongue has power. It can create good art or it can create bad art. It can be used well or it can be used poorly. And I think when we understand what he's saying, um, we realize that this, is a, that this is not what you want in your kid's bedroom, by their bed. You don't want them playing with this at night before they jump into bed to go to sleep, do you? Do you want this by hair? My daughters have long hair and I don't trust your sons I don't care how much you love them. Um, I don't trust them now, and I, I won't ever trust them. Um, but I don't want anyone holding this by my daughter's hair or anywhere around them. I, you know what I'm saying? When you value something, you take this very, very seriously. There's somebody that works for the school district that's like wigging out right now going, I don't even know that I trust you with an open flame in a school building, you know. But when you value something, you treat this very carefully. And James is saying, your tongue is powerful. It creates art. It will mar creation or, or it can help creation. And if you understand you're on the playing field, if you understand that these Christians are your brothers and sisters, if you understand that Antioch or whatever church is your church, then are you gonna set fire to the boat that you're standing on? Would you set fire to the boat that you're standing on? No. Would you set fire to your own house? No. You wouldn't. 
Because setting fire to anything valuable, it's like an oil spill. Once it's out there, you can never get it back. Once you've told five people gossip or slander or hearsay, once you realize you were wrong or that you you didn't quite nuance it, you can't ever get it back with the people that they've told or that they've told. Um, The tongue matters. Teaching matters. Being mature enough to call people to ourselves because we're Christ-centered and authentic and we care about community and we're living our lives for God as if our life belongs to God. We're priests in his kingdom. We're strangers on earth, but we're priests and citizens in his kingdom. That when we can call people to that, that's where Paul envisioned us. That's where Paul is encouraging us and where James is warning us to be careful that we don't go if we can't build people up according to their needs. So the um, worship team is going to come out. I'm going to close this up here. But they're going to come out. We don't have any any more um, special music. It's just going to be worship, responsive worship from this time on. But I want to just read the last part of this passage. It says, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And with the tongue we praise our Lord and our Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. We undignify people that should be dignified. These people have been made in God's likeness, and out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. And my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear uh, bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And what I would say to you is that all of you have influence. If you're on social media, you, you have influence. If you're a blogger, you're a teacher and you're an artist. If you're a parent, you have influence. If you're an aunt or an uncle, you have influence. If you teach in the school district, you have an unbelievable opportunity of influence to steward. If you are really social and have an incredible social network, what you say about other people matters because it travels and it influences. We all are leaders because we all have influence and we can steward that influence to build the kingdom of God, to build the church, to honor our brothers and sisters or, and what should scare us because there's a judgment that goes with it, we can use our mouths to create bad art. Um, So this morning let's pray that God would turn us uh, into the people that he would have us to be, amen.